Welcome to the fifth episode of Let's Start a Dialogue, a podcast where I get to talk to many cool people about big ideas that are better when discussed. In this episode, I got to talk to Jacob Schuler, a computer science student at the University of Connecticut, who's also a tech and finance enthusiast. If investing, finance, tech, and how cryptocurrencies can change the world are topics you're interested in, then you should enjoy our discussions on Robinhood, GameStop, cryptocurrencies, how a decentralized currency can change the world, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and with that, let's start a dialogue with Jacob Schuler. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just get it. Yeah, you know, just get it going. Jacob Schuler, thanks a lot for finding the time. Uh, we haven't spoken in a while, so this is going to be fun to kind of catch up and talk about. All the things you've been, you know, you've been messaging me on Snapchat, which I greatly appreciate because I'm so uninformed. You and then I have a friend, Adam, who texts me everything, you know, stocks related. Uh, and he, he's pretty much my financial advisor. And I, I appreciate a lot because I just don't follow it too, too heavily. But let's just start with a little getting to know you introduction, you know. What have you been up to this past year, uh, kind of your your background experience, schooling and stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to it. Always happy to share some uh, financial advice. Not that I see myself as an expert or anything. I just, you know, like to share my opinions because I know there can be a lot of misinformation in the uh, community. Yeah, I'm a, you know, a senior at UConn. I've been you know, trading more and more in the uh, past a uh, year or so. Uh, I've been trading cryptos for since I was like 11. Um, Jeez. <laughs> and uh, so I've, I've been very deep in those for a while. And not that I had the money to invest, but I uh, am pretty plugged into the aspects of that community. And I, you know, I work as a software engineer part-time at a form labs in Boston. Nice. Working on their their 3D printer infrastructure, not that not their 3D printing infrastructure, but it's a 3D printing company that uh, I've worked on their software in the past, and I'm actually currently working on their uh, developer operations team. So kind of helping to build the infrastructure of the company's web presence. That's sweet. And servers. Dang, nice. So I was I, I knew you were something computer science, but I didn't know if if you stuck with that or if you moved over to finance potentially given you know everything no. talk about. <laughs> it's funny though a lot of my finance friends keep asking me about GameStop I'm like I feel like you guys should be telling me this stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so given the pandemic what have you been up to in the last like year or so I mean how has uh, your time changed and your time spent changed Oh, geez. It's been, I feel like I've just been throwing myself into project after project since the pandemic started. Um, I like to keep busy and uh, I like to learn things as I do that. So uh, I find myself going in like a hundred different directions at once a lot of the time. And it can be hard to keep the time straight, especially in the pandemic. Yeah. Have you been focusing on like software related projects or kind of everything that, that suits your interest? Oh, all types of stuff. Like... So the first big project I did over the pandemic was, uh, so I have a three node Kubernetes cluster in my basement, which is basically a a way to run decentralized software. It's a open source project led by Google and it powers a probably, I I don't want to say the majority, but a growing 
amount, a very large amount of the web is powered on Kubernetes. And this is a project I, I kind of run as a, it's been an ongoing thing for years, but uh, just kind of fun and, you know, experimenting with data center level hardware and, and software. But the downside, of course, was uh, you know, my dad's always bugging me about the electric bill. Um, so <laughs> my first big pandemic project was uh, I built an off-grid uh, solar, you know, basically a solar grid that's uh, totally isolated from uh, the, the main grid. So I have a 1.2 kilowatt array that's literally in my front yard. Um, kind of in the corner. My mom hates how it looked, but I told her it's saving the electricity bill. And it's all just like hand wired up to a, uh, you know, batteries with an inverter. So we can actually run totally isolated off the grid, like when the power's down for uh, for several hours. And that's significantly helped with the, the cost of that infrastructure. But, you know, projects like that to, yeah, software projects or even just, you know, investing or really digging into a certain crypto, um, that kind of thing. I, I like, I see kind of my pursuit of learning about certain topics as kind of little projects as well at certain times, just trying to be on top of what's going on. I, I really like to, to learn about emerging technologies. That's awesome. You literally have solar panels in your yard for a personal project. <laughs> yeah, they just literally run a Kubernetes cluster um, for, I'd say, like, any between the, how sunny it is up to, like, 8 to 10 hours a day, and then it falls back to grid when the batteries get too low. But it's a, I mean, honestly, like, the payback on that solar panel project is way better than any, like, professional installation because I built it with, like the budget parts and I, I didn't get charged through the roof for labor. So it's going to pay itself off in like two to three years versus like, I think the standard is 10 if you get them put on your house. So you literally put it together yourself. Yeah. It's all literally hand wired. Um, like there, <laughs> I have pictures of like the iterations from like when the wires were like just barely safe enough to run that much current to like, now there's some, some beef ones that, uh, some beefy ones that can handle a lot more current, but it, it's this ridiculous thing. I have, um, let me calculate how big these batteries are. I have 10, eight amp hour, 24 volt batteries. So I think that the, the total comes out to almost two kilowatt hours. Um, Jeez, I'm gonna need to send, I'm gonna need you to send me photos of that at some point. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That's I like definitely will. an atypical project. That's sweet. Oh my god! And and when I had Vispro running, that was actually that was my kind of second pandemic project was Vispro. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot that was <laughs> you did that too. How'd that go? Oh, that was that was hilarious. I, that I, blew up really quick. That blew up so quick. We were number three on the app store and social media. We were behind only Facebook and Facebook Messenger for about two weeks. That's insane. Um, we were talking with venture capitalist funds that were interested in investing with um, in us. and uh, But we were having a really hard time with bullying on the platform, uh, which, of course, we didn't approve of. A lot of people were, you know posting things they shouldn't or just making fun of girls and uh you know we obviously the platform Vispro, it, it's not the biggest leap to see that that would happen but uh you know the way we we were designing it was really 
as a joke, we didn't expect it to blow up. First of all, um, it's the most important thing to get out there. It was a joke <laughs> that had literally it, the website had been up for two years before it blew up. And we had the feeling that we just had to get it out there and people would love it and it would be hilarious because it's really funny and we were yeah. right. And, uh, but the thing was when we were trying to, you know, I, I helped design the website and, and the API and we were running it in my basement at the time. We had another friend of ours who was doing the kind of like social media management, trying to get people to use it. And I guess he was DMing people like on Instagram and people were just saying, oh, this is hilarious, but just tell me when you have an app. And as a software engineer, this really frustrates me, <laughs> like probably more than it should, because I have no problem making the app. That's not the issue. It's the problem is why do people want the app? You shouldn't want an app. An app has access to your phone. Even with permission systems, it's been shown time and time again that there's always ways to circumvent them. Uh, you're provided a lot more privacy and security in a browser. And you know, modern mobile browsers are really good. And you can literally grab a shortcut to a website on iOS or Android and it save it on your home screen and it'll look like an app. And most people that, I mean, at a very minimum, the people who are begging for apps probably wouldn't even notice that it's not an app. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think where we're at now is people want the app for the convenience of it. Yep. You know, people are more used to just having platforms like that on their phones. The same reason why most people don't use like Instagram and, and, you know, Snapchat on, on the computer for the exact oh, but, same reason. Yeah. So what I mean is like, I don't even have Instagram installed on my phone. I have an Instagram web app and really like if I handed you my phone, you would have absolutely no idea in the world that I didn't have the Instagram app installed. It, it, it's a, it's a web shortcut that opens Firefox. Uh, but it tells fire, like when I made this shortcut, Firefox knows it's a web app which is means it's essentially an app, but it runs in a web browser. So yep. when I click on this, it looks like Insta Instagram, except there's a little Firefox logo in the corner by default, at least on Android. And I just changed it. So that's gone. So it looks like Android. <laughs> it looks like uh, Instagram. You click it and it opens you into a special Firefox browser that doesn't have like the address bar or any of that other stuff. It just looks like it's Instagram. And yeah. uh, Vispro worked great like this. And it's super easy. Like, I don't have an iPhone, but like on Android, and I think it's the same process on Android. You just literally click like the settings button on any web page, and there's a button that says add to home screen. And uh, like I said, nine out of 10 people won't know that's not an app uh, once it's set up at least. And uh, first of all, it does require less development from the, uh, you know, the team, if there's already a web app, uh, not, you know, not that I want to not, not complaining. We had to make an app. I just see it as additionally, a, it's a serious privacy thing. Um, yeah. There's an inherent trust placed in all apps you install on any device you own from a laptop to a phone. And uh, I, I don't install any uh, software that I don't trust on my devices, at least not to some extent. I download everything, but also yes, think <laughs> nine out of 10 people will not know how to, set up you know the shortcuts that it opens oh, up in a browser yeah. and, and that, we didn't expect them to so when people came and said we want an app we didn't tell them no we didn't tell them to do the web thing we said okay like if ever, like so many people want it we'll just make the app 
And uh, so as soon as we made the app is when it blew up. Like the second there was an app people could download, this kid DM'd us on Instagram. He's like, can I make a TikTok? We're like, yeah, sure, go for it. His TikTok blew up, had like, wow, like I, I want to say like maybe over a million views at the end. There were other TikToks blowing up with hundreds of thousands of views. People thought it was hilarious. And uh, we blew up to number three on the app store. And I really don't like Apple. They're kind of a crappy company. Um, they yep. do a lot of shady business practices. And not that this is shady, but it's a little bit, you know, crappy is there's Apple has their guidelines, right? So there were a few things that we hadn't totally thought of, which Apple was like, you have to add this before we'll put it on the app store. And there were like three times we had it rejected. This is before obviously it blew up. And, you know, it was all reasonable stuff that we fixed. Like the only example that's coming to my mind right now is we didn't have a way to ban users and there wasn't a way to like report posts initially before we launched. So we fixed that before we launched the app. And, uh, you know, there was just some stuff like that. And, uh, Apple had us fix that before they would let us launch the app. But at that point, you would think they've checked it now like four times. They literally, literally meaning they've had their own developers um, or whoever the people who are checking this have opened the app. We literally make them a test account because for, for whatever reason, even though like our API is up and they could just make an account, they refused to do that. So you, you have to like email them a username and password that they can use to log in. Which is strange to me because not that we did this, but something we considered doing was making it so that the test account had different features. <laughs> like we're like, that would be such an easy thing to implement. I don't understand why this is Apple's default. Like not that that's something we would do, but if we wanted to be malicious, we could change the behavior for that test account we provide them. And if they're not making their own account, I guess they can't really guarantee anything about the app, but uh, I digress. Uh, <laughs> you think we we were up to all of their standards, but as soon as you're like top 10 on the app store, Apple st starts to care a lot more about your app because it's now in their eyes, you're now a part of Apple's like brand image. Um, yeah. So we got several calls and emails from Silicon Valley with like ridiculous requests. And the first one I'll say isn't ridiculous is they we had issues with, you know, inappropriate content being posted. And we were like, yeah, that's our number one thing we're, we're working on. Uh, but the ridiculous requests were things like the buttons are the wrong shade of blue. We don't like the exact shape of the buttons and would suggest you change like the circles to like, you know, the ovals to like this dimensional oval. We want these, the position of these buttons to change here, here, and here. And we're like, is this a joke? Like, we're not even sleeping trying to fix just the actual issues with the platform. You know, the, the stuff, at least the email opened with, like we're, we're not, we are a team of five people uh, quickly grew and uh, we couldn't even keep our heads above water, just trying to censor some of the content that was being posted. And Apple emails us and says, we have two weeks to, to make sure the buttons are Tim Cook's favorite shade of blue or they're going to pull us <laughs> off the app store. And it's just, it's crazy to me because Apple has so much power over this market that we weren't, we were barely a business. Uh, but had we been a real business, Apple can actually do that. They could kill our whole business because Tim Cook doesn't like the color of our buttons. <laughs> and I think wow. that is the, the biggest problem in the world that we live in today. Now imagine how they're curating all these other apps that 
they want that are that are blowing up in some way or, or you know making top charts people are downloading them and then apple's getting their hands on every aspect of it that's pretty insane that's like extreme micromanaging pretty much every aspect of the app is what it seems like yeah and this is something i don't know if you followed the senate hearings that happened i want to say like around six months ago now maybe a little more recent um regarding the antitrust issues with it was targeting like amazon google apple and uh facebook um like the the woman i think it was tiles general counsel was on the board and she was saying like apple is already teased basically wanting to come up with a replacement to tile that would be integrated into the ecosystem and not only does apple have an advantage in that they run ios so they have software and hardware level advantages in this market they also have access to all of tile's sales data and user data which gives them in a very unfair advantage over them in a free marketplace so what happened with that did is apple i don't know implement- i mean i have i kind of dropped off following it but i can pretty confidently say that you know big tech pays off congress and uh, <laughs> i don't think we'll <laughs> see too much happen i think yeah. they they targeted google and now there's some there's some antitrust case being built against against google but google will just all they have to do is give a billion dollars to every lawyer <laughs> on the other side uh, i'm joking of course but it's a uh, it's it's almost actually that corrupt and we've come to the point where uh big tech lobbies and uh they control the policies that are written in the united states and uh that is you know i guess the the only discussion or debate to be had on that topic is how much influence uh i think it's a lot but the influence is definitely there and uh, anybody that completely denies it is a I think lying to themselves a little bit. Yeah, something my friends and I, I live with five people at school. I'm at my school right now. And um, I live with four software engineers, including myself and one person who's building construction technology. So he's kind of the one the one out. He, he might as well just take a, an honorary CS degree just living <laughs> with us, honestly. But it's something we talk about too is, I mean, people like Bezos, you know, Amazon, Apple, all those um with that much money that those companies have, you can literally do anything you want in this world. That's how much power they have. And they have so much influence over every aspect of, of our lives. hundred percent. They have more control over your lives than you, like the control over your own life that these companies have um, is higher than the control you have on your life to the extent <laughs> that you don't even know what you're missing out on like there's the whole u.s economy is basically built on a lie and that lie is the u.s dollar wow that's something i actually want to get into later once you start talking about investing kind of uh the the current state of currency and you know the fiat dollar and and yeah it's gold standard and all that stuff the most important point that I can ever hope to get across in my life, and I hope it's a problem that's rectified uh, that we see in our lifetimes, is that fiat money is a complete scam. Um, <laughs> and it's I'm not kidding. I, I legitimately believe that fiat currency is the world's largest scam in the history of humanity that is just now kind of being uncovered about um, 50 
or so years after its first inception in the United States, which is in 1971 when Richard Nixon decided to go off the gold standard, meaning all U.S. dollars could be are backed and can easily be traded for gold to having absolutely no value whatsoever. The U.S. dollars are actually uh, the absence of value. The way basically the dollars are given value is through treasury bonds. Countries like China buy U.S. treasury bonds, and uh, that's what creates the national debt, and that's also what gives you the dollars their buying power. And basically, we're promising to pay back China in the future because they gave us money. Um, the U.S. dollar is a debt vehicle. If I give you $10, you are now in debt to China. It's a little more complicated than that, but they've created this broken, corrupt system where the most coveted resource is debt. And uh, that's that's the problem. <laughs> and yeah, that's actually sorry. I was gonna, that's actually something that I've been trying to explain to some of my friends that when we talk about money and stuff before, it's everyone's always like, "Oh, the debt's so high. How do we get rid of debt?" And it's like the countries, you know, governments aren't thinking about it the way that most you know lay people are thinking about it. It's not like we're just spending money and accruing debt. You know, it's not like we're spending money we don't have and then accruing debt. It's like you said, countries like China and other other countries are buying, or, or like you said, giving us money. Yeah, they're buying the treasury bonds. bonds. Or yeah, like they own pieces of the U.S. and the U.S. is trying to pay back that debt, or, they're or maybe not, not trying even trying to pay. To pay yeah, no one's trying <laughs> to pay back the debt. Um, but that's how that's how it works. Countries are just owning parts of each other and just giving each other money and and whatnot. So. For, for people that don't know, and, and for myself, uh, for whoever does listen to this, can you explain a little bit about what fiat money is? Is it the absence of some standard behind it? Yeah. So um, generally, you want things that have value, right? You know, gold has an intrinsic value to it because it's gold. Uh, people want gold. There's always going to be a demand for gold, for jewelry, for electronics, and uh, to some extent for investing. But we're starting to, I think, see the decline of that. But fiat money is basically paper with no value whatsoever. There's no value behind the money. The money just has value because there's a government that says it has value and they have a really powerful military. So you believe that. <laughs> um, that's, that's what it is. And if you're holding your your net worth or your assets in fiat money, you will only ever lose value. And here's a great scenario I like to tell the people to explain to them why money is bullshit and the whole system is a scam. Um, let's say you bought $100 worth of gold last year, right? Yeah. And then the U.S. decided to go and print. Uh, and for people who don't know this, um, in the past 12 months, the U.S. has created 40% of the dollars in circulation. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So meaning they almost doubled the amount of money in a year and no one's talking about that. At least not as many people as I think should be talking about that. And that means that in, oh, and the U.S. is saying some bullshit like, oh, and well, it's actually not even causing as much inflation as we would think. And, uh, it's, I mean, all the stimulus packages are propping the economy up right now. As soon as we get back to the real world, uh, we're going to see the worst inflation, I think, in the history of the country. I think we're we're on the verge right now of reaching hyperinflation. But anyways, back to the, uh, I, I kind of got ahead of myself. You buy $100 worth of gold, and then 
the value of the dollar decreases by 40% because they printed 40% of the dollars currently in circulation. Now, if you were to sell that gold from a, from a dollar perspective, and they've done such a good job psychologically of burning that the dollar is the gold. I, mean, I shouldn't say the gold standard. The dollar is the, uh, the absolute base standard for w- how you measure value. And I, this is something I'm even struggling with as I have, a large majority of, of my own wealth in crypto, I still find myself using dollars because they've done such a good job of, of getting that into your head. So you now see that you have basically a $40 increase on that gold you bought. Now, to be clear here, your gold has not increased in value at all. Um, while it's possible that uh, there's been increased demand for gold in a situation like this because of the inflation, I'm ignoring that and just saying the only increase in value you're getting is due to the inflation. If you sold that gold here, you didn't make more money. You stored your value in a vehicle that cannot be manipulated and controlled by the U.S. government. And in doing so, you were able to protect that value. So you're $140 U.S. that you now hold is equivalent in value to the $100 that you had last year, uh, you were able to protect that asset in gold. Um, However, as soon as you sell it, the US government's going to go, oh, that's some great short-term capital gains that you have. Please give us our 35%. (laughs) And you now get taxed 35% on not an increase in value, not an increase in net worth, simply the protection of your existing value from the corrupt hands of the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a big, a, a quick financial lesson for, for people that listen. Yeah, I love that example. It's <laughs> a good example. Um, so let's, let's get into, you mentioned crypto and you started trading at 11. I mean, so how did you first get into investing? And what were you looking at in terms of trying to get out of it? And then where did that kind of take you on your investing journey, considering, I mean, it's been so long since, uh, that's like 10 years of investing uh, in in different avenues. Yeah, actually, it was like, I want to say sixth or seventh grade. So yeah, I was in the range of like 11 to 13. I, I have to dig up the exact time it happened. But Drew Rubin actually told me about Bitcoin for the first time. Me too. And uh I thought it was the coolest shit ever. And I'll quickly say, Drew, despite telling everybody about Bitcoin, didn't hold any long term in his kicking. Um, Yeah, I remember sitting in middle school around, you know, our our lunchroom table with just a bunch of people. It was PE or something. It must have been like we were waiting for class. And I was sitting at a table with Drew, who's our mutual friend from high school and middle school. And he, he brought up Bitcoin. And I was... I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point in my life. You know, I, I was into computers and tech, not really into finances that much in terms of investing. And, you know, I, th- I thought, oh, this is neat. But who the hell cares? You know, like, you know, whatever. It's not it's not up my alley. You know, I don't care about it. It's not not nothing serious. And he said, how he, you know, however much he bought it at that time, it was like Bitcoin itself was still like dollars. Yeah, I think when Drew first told me about it, it was about 80 bucks. And it's just like, holy hell, you know, so is that kind of what got you into investing? And then you looked into, you know, stocks and stuff after that? Yeah, so I didn't uh, actually the first time I first invested on on Robinhood, uh, you know, 
platform that shall not be named uh back because <laughs> the, the business team remember we were the ones like we were in business team when it was in like the beta release and everybody signed up uh yeah. that's the first time i traded stocks but i just i, I kind of casually traded and held not just small amounts of Bitcoin when I was younger, but you know, I was 13. I literally had like $200 to my name and I bought one Bitcoin and I, at 80 bucks and I sold half of it when it got to 250. Yeah. And then I sold more of it when I got to a thousand. And then I was like, okay, fuck, instead of selling it, I just need to be buying as much as I can. And it was like the su summers in high school, I would work like, you know, all summer and just buy Bitcoin and, my standard basis for Bitcoin is really like it's, it's close to 3000 despite having bought my first uh, first entire coin at 80. I sold a lot of it on the way up and then said, oh, shit, I, I like, you know, I was 15. I'm like, I need to just start buying as much as possible because we live in this world where uh, the U.S. government controls the money and maybe that system made sense back before the internet but now we have such better ways to distribute um, information and now wealth thanks to bitcoin that i really don't see any reason that the existing dollar system fits into the world anymore yeah so once you transitioned from you know crypto actually let's stay on crypto for a bit okay. so being globalized and decentralized you know you can buy it anywhere you can use it anywhere it's not tied down to a currency it's on blockchain a lot of cool technology that people are still trying to figure out uses for it do you think that it's going to be more beneficial to and it seems like you do uh it's going to be more beneficial to get off of you know individual country money standards and move over to something like crypto whether it's bitcoin do you think that we need, I mean, there's so many different cryptocurrencies out now. Yes. That do you is think that problem, do you think it's bad that there's so many being put out there that are almost memes now, or do you think yeah. that it's fine that they're created, they're still floating around, people are buying and selling and, and adding value to different cryptocurrencies, or should we have a limited few that are almost tried and true and, and can act as a new standard, kind of like Bitcoin and Ethereum are trying to act now. Yeah. So the problem is one of the things that people love about Bitcoin that's an existing problem with our current system is there's no fixed supply. And what I mean by that is the U.S. at any time can decide to print any amount of money. And that's like what we were talking about before. And that devalues all existing money. So when you get your um, $1,400 stimulus check, uh, there's actually calculations that the stimulus checks cost average Americans more than it gave them. Um, mm -hmm. That is what you start to see in the beginning of uh, currency going under hyperinflation. And that's like what you, those pictures you see in the textbook of like little kids uh, playing with bricks of money instead of toys. <laughs> yeah. um, or like, I know Mr. Jewel told us that story. I don't know if you had him sixth grade of yep. some country where the guy took a wheelbarrow full of money to the bank, went inside to ask if he was allowed to bring in a wheelbarrow and somebody dumped out his money and stole his wheelbarrow. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, there's a good chance we start to see that happening in the US because uh, so with fiat money, and this is important for people to understand, it, it's kind of the root of why fiat money is a scam um, and why it, they can use it to take 
your value away from you so easily is when they print money, they take money away from every person holding U.S. dollars. Now, this is similar to how new cryptocurrencies are, are minted, which I can touch on in a second. The problem with fiat currency is there's no limits, restrictions, or regulations on how the money is printed. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. This is a big problem in the current U.S. economy because what it, it essentially allows is legislation-free taxation, uh, whereas new taxes and changes to existing taxes have to go through a, a series of regulations. Um, printing money doesn't, at least not to the same extent. I'm not, there's people more educated on this topic than me, but if the U.S. quickly needs a lot of money, for example, for a stimulus bill, um, they don't have the time to legislate new taxes and then tax and then collect the taxes and all that. So the best thing for them to do, and you know, this is good for the country, you know, being the government, is that they can just print the money. And that essentially indirectly taxes everybody holding any amount of U.S. dollars. And it gives that value back to the government. When they print new values, the total value of the U.S. dollar as a whole hasn't changed. They just redistributed where some of it is by decreasing the value of each one. Now, with cryptocurrencies, at least depending on the cryptocurrency, with Bitcoin, no one can do that. With Bitcoin, there's a set 21 million Bitcoins that will ever exist. Uh, every Bitcoin block that is, uh, as of today, that is created, um, the miner gets 6.25 Bitcoins on top of the transaction fees. Initially, this was 50 Bitcoins. Um, and every four years, the amount halves. So um, in like three and a half years or so, um, we are going to, or I think about three years now, we are going to see it drop from 6.25 to 3.125 or whatever. Um, and that's what is so attractive to people. That's um, part of what's made Bitcoin attractive to me. And that's currently the number one reason. That's what people are referring to when they talk about Bitcoin as a store of value. So that kind of leads me to one of the things I want to talk about that was huge this year in, in the markets as a whole was Tesla investing um, in Bitcoin. And yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that was insane. That is showing you and they're not the first company to do that. They're not the last, but they're the largest. Um, you know, Tesla's, I want to say number nine world market cap asset. Um, and they invested in Bitcoin and there was actually some data that came out that like Tesla and now the price is even higher, but like Tesla has made more money off of buying Bitcoin than off of selling electric cars Total <laughs> ever. Yeah. I think it was like $3 billion that they invested in Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it was which- nuts. Wow. But the value went up. And the thing is, the value it will keep going up because it's like land. There will only ever be, but, but it's even more scarce than land. There will only ever be more Bitcoins, or sorry, more people. And there will only ever be less Bitcoins. People can lose Bitcoins. I myself have lost more Bitcoins than I care to admit uh, due to failed hard drives that weren't properly backed up. An important thing when you get into crypto is to make sure you have backups and that your backups are safe. Meaning not only will they not be damaged by a fire or flood or something else, but that no one else will gain access to them if you're keeping Mm -hmm. backups. So... Can you go into, you said there's 21 million Bitcoin, that's the cap, yep. but we're not at, there, there isn't 21 million Bitcoin in circulation, right? Yes. We're still getting to that. Million. Number. 
and we're still trying to get to the number of max Bitcoin, right? Through Bitcoin mining and stuff, or yeah, how does it so, work? So the idea is, so currently I just pulled it up. The total current supply of Bitcoins is 18.65 million out of that 21 million. And yeah. like I said that like, so mining is not just the way new Bitcoins are minted. Mining is also the way that existing transactions are computed and added to the blockchain and pulled out of the, they call it the mempool is like the waiting room uh, for, for Bitcoin transactions. So, you know, when it first came out every 10 minutes, which is every block. So blocks are, um, it's a little complicated, but um, are, you, are you familiar with like the general concept of how mining works at all? I am, yes. I, so I did some digging on at least their, uh, I forget what it's called, their contract system. Smart contracts. Um, smart contracts, yeah, and the way that they work. Uh, but that's different from Bitcoin. Yes. Uh, so if you can go into that a bit. So yeah, so the way Bitcoin mining works is it, it solves what's called the double spend pro uh, problem in um digital money and this is a problem that has existed as long as digital money itself because the basic concept of digital money is easy i mean half the us dollars are totally fake and just uh fractionally loaned out by banks and just only exist in databases so uh the, the concept of having digital money isn't new the concept that bitcoin added to the table is what's known as the, the only current known solution i believe to the double spend problem um and what that means is if i wanted to pay marchin ten dollars and i have ten dollars like let's say in a paypal account um or something similar um it can be very hard and there can be race conditions which without getting into the really technical aspect basically how can marchin be sure i have that ten dollars give to him? and i'm not going to try to give it to someone else before he fully has it you know there can be delays in the propagation of the network bitcoin fixes this with mining and what mining does is it requires you to put in some amount of work uh into a problem uh in order to for, first of all immutably add something to a ever extending chain and give you a reward meaning you essentially use your computer and you do a complex calculation. In, in Bitcoin, this is known as a double SHA-256, which is just a fancy word for a uh, for people that are familiar with hashes. They'll know what that means. But basically, it's a, it's a common thing used in cryptography that you can put in any data and you more or less get uh, random output. And the two important properties are that the output cannot be predicted, nor can you take the output and go back to the input. Um, so that allows people basically have to um, run calculations to find a based solution to the next block. And they do that by just hashing the, like the, uh, the block header for the block they're proposing, as well as a nonce, which is just a number that they keep changing and then running the hash to see if they have a basically a winning block. It's like, it's like every time you run the hash, you're scratching a lottery ticket. And every time you look at the hash output, you have, you know, you have a chance that it's going to be good enough or a low enough number that uh, it's going to be accepted block into the blockchain. And when you do that, you get to give yourself 6.25 Bitcoins in that block. Uh, and you additionally give, you know, a bunch of transactions like a ride into the blockchain 
um, and you get to collect fees from those transactions as well. This results in pressure on the memory pool, meaning uh, during high traffic periods of the day, you might have to pay very high amounts to get a Bitcoin transaction confirmed in a short amount of time. Um, this is uh, one of the things people attack when they say Bitcoin can never be money. Um, there are solutions to this, such as uh, the Lightning Network, which is a level two solution that allows for uh, nearly or theoretical infinite amount of payments on a second level. Uh, it's still, it's not a, you know, a second crypto or anything like Ethereum. It still operates with Bitcoins as the, uh, the base unit. Um, and it's kind of designed to be similar to a credit card circuit that functions in a decentralized nature. I run a, a Bitcoin Lightning node myself. And you can use Bitcoin Lightning to make uh, payments on, you know, plenty of websites now. And we're ho hoping to see it gain more traction in the future. Okay. So in terms of mining, uh, so. Sorry, I, I went a little it, bit of a tangent. No, totally, no, it's totally fine. Um, with mining and once Bitcoin kind of blew up and like you said, let me get this right. If I dumb it down for myself and for people listening. So. Mining itself is pretty much computers and hard or hardware trying to solve cryptography problems in mm -hmm. essence, and or not not necessarily solve by the way that you put it. It seems like you mentioned it almost being a lottery. So every machine that's mining for for this Bitcoin or for this transaction is trying to see if they have the right, I guess you can call it key or a number, yeah, winning a number is what you call it. It's basically a, a useless number that all it does is change the input of the hash function. Okay. And if that, so if a computer or somebody that is mining and trying to do these calculations and see if they have the right nonce, um, then if they have the correct one, that's when they're kind of, what you call it, like confirmed or uh, yeah, so accepted into the blockchain. Like confirmed, I guess you'd say accepted into the blockchain. Uh, there are situations where those confirmations are not um, are not final. And an example of this was I don't know, you may or may not have seen a few months ago there was a bunch of news about a double spend on the blockchain. I'm not sure what the publisher of this article was hoping to do. I don't know if they were legitimately incompetent or if they were trying to. <laughs> Spread, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about Bitcoin, but there was never a double spend on the blockchain. There never could be. It's not like, oh, theoretically, it couldn't happen. It literally couldn't happen. Um, and the what happened, and I'll explain in a moment what happened a few months ago, uh, is something that was accounted for in the original white paper written back in like 2009, and is something that happens every couple weeks. <laughs> Uh, and what I'm referring to is the blockchain, uh, a blockchain reorganization. And what a blockchain reorganization is, all that means is, you know how I referred to Bitcoin solving the double spend problem? Yep. Essentially, you could have two blocks. And now let's pick, picture a, a, a graph. You can think of the Bitcoin network as a graph where you know, you have a bunch of nodes that are connected by, uh, you know, they're connected to other peers, you know, similar to some like how like torrenting would work with peering. And if two nodes on like far away in the graph mine a block at almost the exact same time, um, you know, the, when you hear about a new block, if you're mining, 
you then start mining on that new block. Does that make sense? Like you, you mine on top yes, of a, yeah. a previous one. So you can have a situation where there are two blocks that both fit all the conditions. And the reason that you know there's that work associated, a lot of people think this energy is wasteful. And if, if you want, I can get into it later why I think that's very wrong. It's not a waste of energy at all. Um, but they use energy or computing power, you know, both to get a block. And, you know, both people want their block to succeed, but in reality, only one of them can because they exist at the same height. So what's going to happen is all miners are just going to kind of arbitrarily pick which block they're going to mine on. And at a certain point, um, another block will be mined. And quick tangent, on average, a block is mined every 10 minutes. And they do that by recalculating the difficulty. I believe that's done every two weeks. And it's not actually every two weeks. It's at every 2016 blocks, which works out to about two weeks. They will recalculate the difficulty. And basically, the way that's done is by looking at um, the past 2016 blocks and seeing if, um, if the average time between the blocks was too short or too long and in response they can increase or decrease the difficulty of the chain and that's basically when we were talking about the SHA-256 function and I said you had to get a the output is a large number so the difficulty is just a number and your output has to be lower than that so they keep lowering that you know sometimes it actually does uh, the difficulty goes down but on average the difficulty goes up every two weeks because there's more and more people mining and the idea is to keep the blocks every 10 minutes like whereas ethereum has faster and larger blocks the bitcoin blocks are slow and small which means there's going to be less people putting kind of bullshit in the blockchain and it's going to keep the blockchain small the ethereum blockchain i think is over a terabyte the bitcoin blockchain is only like 300 something and it's you know, it's older than the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so like, this is a huge problem because if we put every transaction that Visa had ever conducted into a blockchain style format, it would be 35 terabytes. And that significantly limits the number of people who can run a node. I run a node in my basement. I don't mine Bitcoin on my own node. I do mine both Ethereum and Bitcoin, uh, but I do that as a pool. And a pool basically means since I'm realistically never going to mine Bitcoin a whole block myself, because, you know, the whole block is six Bitcoins. So that's like, thir like a third of a million dollars per block. What you do is you find a whole bunch of people that all want to mine a block and they all basically work together. And so I have computers that are, are trying different nonces. And if I get one that, Let's say it's not quite as low as the difficulty requires, but it's it's past some other threshold. Uh, then I can just say to the pool, "Hey, look, here's a nonce that's pretty close. This is proof that I'm trying. And not only is it proof that I'm trying, but you can tell how hard I'm trying based on how many you know close nonces I get, and uh, they'll pay you proportionally. So if you have 360 people providing an equal amount of power to a pool and it mines a block everybody gets uh you know one percent of that so like you would work with a pool and a pool is like a third-party company that 
just allows people to share or pool their hashing power into a single node and then gives them proportional payouts. This yeah. is an example of kind of another layer to Bitcoin mining um, that's totally done by third parties and not really part of the protocol itself. Once Bitcoin blew up and you know you hear about all these companies investing in literally the infrastructure of just computers and computing power just to make mining, you know, just to make miners. Um, is there a downside to having like big corporations mining for Bitcoin? And you know, the only concern blockchain? is if a company were to get more than 51% of the hash power on the network, they could do what's called a 51% attack, which I'm honestly not super familiar with the with the details. But one of the things is theoretically they could do a double spend in that scenario. And additionally, they could easily censor Bitcoin. That that's that one's easy, and that one I, I understand. And that's basically, um, if you have more than fifty-one percent of the hash power, that means you can generate new blocks faster than the rest of the network combined. So let's say the NSA had fifty-one percent mm-hmm. of the Bitcoin hash power, they could censor transactions. They could mark certain Bitcoins as bad and say they couldn't be spent. Um, you know, if they had uncovered some drug ring they could mark bitcoins as bad and then if they're ever spent the nsa will then remine that block so let's see the current latest block let me check is block six hundred seventy-five thousand two hundred and thirty-eight. let's say in that block i spent a bitcoin that the nsa marked as bad and the nsa instead of doing the normal behavior of mining block uh you know, 675,238, they'll actually just mine that same block again that contained my transaction. And then, you know, they can do what, what I referred to before, a block reorganization, except this is a malicious block reorganization because they're doing it even though they know yes. there's another block. They're actually doing it because of that block. And now this will not only allow them to censor the network, but this will give them the power to encourage other miners to censor as well. Because that block I just referred to Mm -hmm. was mined by a pool called Antpool, and they got their 6.25 Bitcoins for that. And if the NSA remines that block, they're not keeping that reward. That block now is not part of the blockchain. Uh, So they're going to listen to the NSA if the NSA has that kind of power. So that's a concern with theoretically an attack that could be done against bitcoin um how do you avoid that then how how do you like are there certain systems in place that'll pretty much say hey you can't have i mean one person smarter computer scientists than you or i probably could give a like a cryptographic answer to this i have heard there are solutions Mm -hmm. there are ways to kind of abandon the NSA chain and theoretically detect it. I see it as being a big headache, but additionally, I don't see it as being easy for them to access that much hash power on top of it being just a huge amount of electricity, which would be easy. The actual equipment is very expensive and can be hard to get. When you're mining and you said you're always mining the, I guess, most recent, the head block, right? You said that the NSA in this example um, could remine it. If I was to start mining, for example, can I choose, like, I can't just choose which block I want to mine on, right? Am I? You could, you could, your software could choose. The question is, how do you tell it what to choose? Mm -hmm. Right. Because chain reorganization is a healthy part of the, the blockchain. Oh, and I started to explain this and went on a tangent. Basically, in that scenario where you have a chain reorganization, there is a small chance that 
those two blocks that are on the same level as each other spent the same Bitcoins. Now, a chain reorganization, while common, this other scenario I'm referring to is uncommon. It doesn't happen often, and it happened a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and people were freaking out. But the thing is, there wasn't a double spend on the blockchain. There was a double spend on two different blockchains because the blockchain had a fork in it and the chain reorganized within 10 to 20 minutes. A single block reorganization, meaning there's two different chains of the same height that are competing, which is what happens in that scenario. Uh, those are common. Those happen a few times a month, probably. A two block reorganization, maybe every few months. And that means that, so the divergent chain has two new blocks on the head of it. Yep. Sorry, I'm not explaining this well. No, it's totally fine. So I mean. in, in essence, so it's, it's almost like a race condition that's satisfied for both parties, which yes, exactly. a race condition being two people in this scenario would try to mine this block. They both, exactly some, uh, for whatever reason, just, I guess, by chance and luck and whatever the reason, yep. they might, you know, they got the correct hash or the closest hash. And they were both uh, accepted into the blockchain. But then you're saying that block... Uh, They're not accepted into the blockchain is something clear because the blockchain doesn't exist anywhere. The blockchain ex exists as a decentralized shared state. And that's what the blockchain is mm -hmm. because you were correct in calling it a race condition. The blockchain, basically, I, I guess I, did, I didn't explain it super well, but solves this, you know, the double spend race condition by creating the world's first ever decentralized shared state system, which is the blockchain. Because except in those scenarios where, yeah, you have two different blocks that are competing for the head. So the blockchain as a whole did not accept both blocks. Mm -hmm. You have specific nodes that accepted one and specific nodes that accepted the other state. So that you've had a minor fork here in the network, but this is again, something that the blockchain knows about. It, it was written in the original white paper of Bitcoin. And uh, these reorganizations, like I said, are common um, and can happen. And it's an exponential back off. So like I said, every few weeks we'll have a one block reorganization. Every few months we'll have a two block reorganization. I don't think we've ever had a three block reorganization or more, uh, but it would be exceedingly rare. So that's why to consider it confirmed and final, uh, the original white paper suggests you have six confirmations, which means even you basically look at the top six blocks at any time and take them with a grain of salt. Don't consider them permanent until that block is seven deep in the chain. Huh. Okay. Because then it's unlikely for it to, get reorganized yeah. and get reminded. Like okay. I said, three has never happened. Six is just the very overkill number that gets thrown around. That's part of the white paper. Oh, I see. Okay. Wow. So sticking on crypto then, have you heard of NFTs and non-fungible tokens? Uh, I hate them so, so much. I hate them. So <laughs> they're just recently, I guess, popping up in my sphere uh, of people and the people I talk to. I know they've been NBA around. Top Shot? <laughs> what's, what's that? Is it, oh, you're not familiar with that one? Is that uh, an NFT that was just uh, an NBA NFT and somebody sold it or something? Oh, it, no, it's it's huge. It's a whole platform. Before before we get into that, so... Are yeah, you, sorry. How much do you... I thought you were going <laughs> to... No, I've only just recently started looking into it. Maybe the last week or so, NFTs kind of popped up in my in my bubble of people and, and my window of the internet. 
Um, so NFTs stand for non-fungible tokens, and they're somehow based on a blockchain, right? Like, are you like, yeah, they're, you hate them. I'm assuming them you know how are they're like. basically a scam again. And I hate to throw that word around so much, but there's a lot of scams in the crypto space. And NFTs are one of those scams where I don't even know if they know they're scams. Um, but the people using them should be aware of what's what the real underlying technology is. Yeah, that's very little. It almost seems like when it popped up for me, it was something that blew up and people are trying to take advantage of. And exactly. It's a bubble. I think it's going to do really poorly. I think there's going to people going to be people who get burned by it. And as a result, don't like crypto. I don't see what value NFTs add to the world. There's NFTs on Ethereum. I would consider those the most legit uh, because while ethereum is not my favorite crypto it's a it's a distant second to bitcoin yeah. can you explain what nfts are after this yeah of course so what an nft is is just a token that represents some arbitrary data and what i mean by a token uh, is like it's, you could think of it as kind of like a bitcoin but instead of being a bitcoin it's just something else <laughs> and uh so like you could NBA Top Shot is when I was talking about where you can you can buy moments from like NBA games. So you can like theoretically buy and own moments and you own them like on a blockchain, except you don't because it's a scam. <laughs> um, basically, the problem is so with the Ethereum blockchain, that's a real blockchain. That's a blockchain people use for money, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the problem is the gas fees and the gas fee is a fee you pay to the miner uh, that, how do I put this? So Bitcoin transactions and the Bitcoin, so it's common misconception. Bitcoin does not have smart contracts. It does. They're just not Turing complete, meaning you couldn't compute anything. Ethereum smart contracts are Turing complete, which allows them to have a lot deeper functionality. Additionally, though, a lot more expensive resource usage, whereas Bitcoin transactions have a very set limit of what they can do. So you only just you pay some amount of Bitcoin per byte. So the bigger your transaction, the more you pay. But that's it. Ethereum is a lot more complicated because you could have a script uh, and they actually run an Ethereum virtual machine to run the scripts. So you could have memory access, you could have disk access, you could have things that are harder and more complicated. So Ethereum has a gas, um, which is kind of an arbitrary number that is your fee for computing on the decentralized global computer, which is Ethereum, which is a cool concept. Um, And the downside is currently Ethereum gas prices are very high. Like a smart contract, like an, a complex smart contract could run you $200. So moving NFTs, uh, which can be large and uh, have advanced smart contracts on Ethereum is, is not a great idea. If you're buying, if you're buying an NFT that's worth $10, it could cost you 80 just to do a transaction to purchase it. So as a result, a lot of these companies uh, such as something called flow have popped up which are basically private blockchains that are controlled by a single company or even if they're not totally private they're basically chains popping up just for nfts and Mm -hmm. nfts are stupid because you're putting it in a blockchain so if you bought some like artwork as an nft everybody in the world now has access to this artwork there's just a little line that says oh and it's owned by marchin 
And even worse than that, some of these systems don't even actually store the NFT in the blockchain. They'll store like a hash of the data or even worse, they'll store like a hash of a JSON file that has like the file name of the NFT. Like, do you understand the level to which that's just basically a ripoff <laughs> at this point? Yeah. You have people spending thousands of dollars for the hash of a JSON file containing a file name. So it's almost and zero value. It's zero value. No value. Yep. And even worse than that. So this NBA Top Shot one is huge. There's like, like moments is what they call them. They have packs. So it's like trading cards, except they're digital. So it's like a little clip. And there, there's some of them that are going for like, I want to say tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And you ready for my favorite part? Hmm. There is a blockchain. They're built on Flow, uh, which uses like Dapper, which basically there's just a whole bunch of really like companies involved that don't trust it all. And they're running a private blockchain. It's stupid. But on top of that, when every transaction between players, like between people on the network, there are two wallets that Dapper uses. And they just send all the NFTs back and forth between the two wallets when they're sold so that legally they can claim it's a blockchain purchase. What the hell? Yeah. And I, so, yeah, I saw. I hate NFTs. I think we should <laughs> stay away from them. <laughs> I saw, I saw, and it was, it must have been the NBA moment. Somebody bought like a, a an NFT of LeBron dunking or something, and they sold it for like an absurd amount of money. And it's just like, what the hell? Like, yeah, I, I think they're dumb. Let's move on to something that I really want to talk about, and I know you're gonna have a lot of insight on this. Is GameStop. <laughs> what the GameStop. hell happened with GameStop? So, can you give? Brief background on that and what the heck went down. Yeah, so GameStop is something that has never happened before, ever. It has not to this magnitude. There have been short squeezes in the past. There's never been a short squeeze like GameStop or anywhere close to being like you GameStop. You think so? What about Volkswagen? And Volkswagen was very different. The percent of float was much lower, and that was actually orchestrated by Porsche uh, to, to hostily take over the company. <laughs> So while while the there's a lot of comparisons going on, it's not a good comparison, and it's the best one we have. That's why people are using it. But like the the CEO of Porch was was charged with market manipulation, and it's a very different set of set of circumstances. The shorts were squeezed, not to not because the company was turning around, but because Volkswagen or Porsche manipulated it as such sort of i don't know enough about that situation mm -hmm. so uh but it is not similar is what i can confidently say it is well it's similar but it's not very similar um uh, i don't think we're ever going to see something like this quite again so what happened was not to sound like a conspiracy theorist but there is heavy manipulation of the media and i guess before i get into that um i i, I believe that so we can talk about that as well yeah, and that's a heavily incorporated into the whole GameStop story and the yeah, stock market. Definitely. So first, I'm sure you're familiar with shorts. Do you want me to give just a quick explanation, though? For Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the easiest way to look at a short is, uh, let's say there's 10 shares of some company Marchand came up with, and that company's worth $100. Every share in his company uh, is going to be worth like $10. And that's how the free market works. So I could trade my share with someone else and uh, they could buy it. And if, if there's more people that want the share than are willing to give one up, uh, the price will go up. 
and then you know that there might be more people at a higher price that are willing to sell and the same thing works in the reverse when it's going down um, what short selling is short selling is the act of selling a share that you don't own so let's say we have a third party come in here and they say you know marchin that guy doesn't know what he's doing his company's going into the ground um they can go and sell 10 of his shares for his company and uh oh, let's say let's start with one so now there's 11 shares in circulation so you know rather than um all the shares being worth ten dollars each share is going to be worth like nine dollars and nine cents and the total value of the company is the same but somebody has pushed new shares into the market and now shorting is legal uh, but the method at which and the extent to which gamestop has been shorted is bringing into question a lot of the current regulations of the financial system let's say this this malicious actor then came in and they said you know i'm not just speculating that martian's company is going to go into the ground i'm going to cause it they could then sell 10 shares which is the same amount of shares as you issued and now the value of each share is going to be five dollars well that worked so well why only issue 10 let's issue 10 more now more shares have been issued by this short seller than by you and that's a problem for a lot of reasons because you have that's where you start to get manipulation of a share price and when covid hit these short sellers saw it as a great opportunity to short companies and make a lot of money now something that's important for people to know is if a company that you are short also quickly if the price goes down you then buy back the share and then sell it sorry you you buy it back and return it to whoever you borrowed it from because to sell it, you have to borrow it through your brokerage, which is a complicated process that we don't have to get into. But you borrow it from someone who is still owed a share. And then when the price goes down, they'll buy it back, return it, and then you know that person can do with it what they want. When the price goes up, the shorts get screwed <laughs> because they now have to buy a share that's more expensive than the price that they already sold it at. Uh, and they don't want to do that ever. Uh, luckily for them, they have a lot of tools in their toolkit to manipulate the market. And one of those tools is, you know, just selling the shares short. That alone is going to drive the price down. So in that situation, let's say you had issued 10 shares and then another party issued 100 shares. There's now 110 shares actually circulating when you only issued 10. And realistically, there's only 10. And you know, that's going to put a very low dollar value on each share. And given the amount of money that these companies have, they're able to put negative pressure on different companies, especially struggling companies, um, to try to put them into bankruptcy. Because if you're a short seller, you are uh, disproportionately encouraged to like get that company to go bankrupt because if that company goes bankrupt, you not only don't have to close your position whatsoever, but you don't have to pay any taxes on the value of the profits you made. So now let's put this into GameStop. GameStop in January was shorted over 140% of float, meaning out of the shares that were in circulation, there were 140% of that shorted. So the float is 70 million. That means there's, uh, you know, over 170, 180 yeah, exactly. million. Exactly. Which drives the price down. And 
with GameStop, they've actually been struggling with this. And I think, you know, obviously COVID is a big problem, but I think a lot of the media attention on COVID has been a result of some of these short companies uh, trying to make a narrative about small businesses and struggling businesses in order to send them bankrupt because it's a very, very common practice for a company, a, a hedge fund or a investment firm who has a large short position in the company to actually um, put out false information about the company that's negative, uh, which is of course illegal mar market manipulation. But there's a great video of Jim Cramer um, from CNBC's Mad Money uh, from like 2013 he literally there's like a video tutorial that got leaked from wall street insider about like how to manipulate the market as a hedge fund he goes and there's even <laughs> he says in the video he goes yeah it's illegal but you're not going to get caught and if you do the fine is going to be nothing compared to what you made so just do it you're losing wow. money not to if that's how these companies operate and like gamestop there was media silence um, there was a big drop uh, this, I think, last Wednesday, was it? And there was media silence all week as GameStop rallied higher, like not higher than it had ever been, but very high media silence. The, the price dropped and every, you know, Market Watch, all of these different websites put out articles about the GME drop. Uh, a lot of the websites posted their articles a few minutes too early before the drop started or before it finished. And they... they they, the ones that posted it before it finished had all the information about how far it dropped and exactly when and when it stopped. And there was a few articles that had been indexed by Google 18 hours before the drop. This was clearly a coordinated attack on the market. That was all. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, it's very, very bad. We live in a corrupt country. <laughs> yeah, so I was familiar with the whole like we talked about earlier, these, these big companies having a lot of stake in and influence over us and kind of the information we're exposed to. Um, I remember when GameStop, the trading hit mainstream. I mean, I go to the gym and every TV, every news station was strictly reporting GameStop, how, how bad it was. They're, they're talking about the people investing into GameStop and downplay isn't the right word. They were trying to demonize the people that oh, were 100%. trying to buy into and you look at these headlines and it's these like hedge funds own a lot of market companies especially financial market companies and they do that because it lets them write the narrative of what's happening in the world to the narrative that profits them the most yeah i mean you look at these headlines and it was like you know millennials living in their basement are just buying into the stock for the you know shits and giggles and if you're uninformed might not be the word, but if you're unaware of, if you're not following this space too closely and you see these headlines, I mean, you're taking it for truth. You know, mm -hmm. in your mind, if you're reading, you know, watching this news, you're thinking the common person is manipulating these markets. They're trying to take down these big corporations, you know, and the way that it was spun was so negative to the good cause <laughs> uh, behind this whole situation. It was just, yeah, was, and we actually I think so we might have skipped over see. that for anybody listening who isn't familiar with how the squeeze itself is going to function. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you'd like to go into that, sure. Yeah, so the the fundamentals of a short squeeze is when I was saying that if the price goes up, you have to then buy back at a higher price. Well, you don't have to. You could keep waiting for it to go back down. But what if it doesn't? And what if there's a point where the money you essentially would owe on GME is larger than the combined sum of all your positive assets. 
Uh, and that's what we refer to as going into uh, margin debt, margin deficit, or getting a margin call. There's a couple ways to put it. But basically, it means you're now essentially borrowing money from your broker to an extent that they don't want that to happen. And when you go into a margin call with your broker, you know, they say you have to give us more money or we'll liquidate, we'll liquidate your positions. Um, and then you know they, they come up with some money and throw it in. That This is why, uh, if you heard Citadel... And I, I think this alone was market manipulation. After the first kind of squeeze on GameStop began, Citadel is another company. Uh, other, so Melvin Capital was the one that was on a lot of the headlines. They're not the biggest short. They're the weakest link. And they're, they did heavily short GameStop. But what I mean by being the weakest link is um, they are the smallest of the companies that are majorly shorting GameStop, which means they will be the first to fall. And when I say fall, I'm referring to the total amount of their assets being less than how much they essentially owe on GameStop shares. And that's why when they lost 53% of their entire, you know, they had $12 billion under management at the beginning of the year, they lost 53% of it in January on GameStop alone. Citadel and 0.72, I think, uh, were like, oh crap, if if they get margin called, meaning their broker says, okay, you know, whatever you want doesn't matter anymore. We're closing your positions. That's when the short squeeze happens because if you have a lot of people on the market, like these uh, Wall Street Bets users um, that won't sell except at really high prices, when your brokerage auto closes your position, they'll fill at those high prices. And that's why people are saying, they're not joking nearly as much as you think that let's see GameStop hit a million dollars a share. Let's see it hit half a million dollars a share. I legitimately think we could see it hit a hundred K if the squeeze is successful. And that basically means getting the price high enough. And to be clear, you know, it's not manipulation. It's not that we're trying to push the price up. It's that GameStop is undergoing a fundamental restructuring. And that is going to, push the price up and but it's also it's pushing out the manipulation of the price because so obviously the value of stocks are speculative but the one thing you can look at is like the total amount of cash per share meaning the how much money the company has in the bank divided amongst the traded shares can give you the cash value of each share. There was a point over the summer when GameStop had $4 in the bank for every share that was in circulation. But despite that, because of the short interest on the stocks and the synthetic shares on the market, each share was trading at less than $4 for 250. That's insane. Mm -hmm. That never happens. So if we see this squeeze, those people have to cover and you know they're shorting more than the entire volume of the company a short squeeze can happen with as little as 25 to 35% of uh short interest on the stock for gamestop it started at over uh 140 uh they've been doing a bunch of kind of funky things to hide the short interest but there's estimations it could be uh i, I think it could realistically be in the 3 to 400s wow which means they eventually have to buy those shares. And when they buy those shares, they have to buy them at any price available. And when that happens, that drives up the price. And that puts the other shorts into a margin deficit. Mm-hmm. So that's why Citadel in point seventy two gave Melvin Capital basically a $3 billion bailout. Because they were like, if this hedge fund you know, goes into deficit, 
we're going into deficit. Yeah, it's almost like they're next, you know, they're, yeah. So in essence, GameStop was shorted. As far as we know, I mean, I remember there's a point where I was following the, I guess you can, like the numbers, you know, um, just the information is more or less available online if you if you dig for it of how many shares are shorted. And I, I believe it was around 180%. No, it's not. No one knows for sure. It's all speculation. Really? Yeah. Because they're they're hiding them in ETFs. They're doing so many illegal things, but it's so commonplace because the SEC will find you a fraction of what you make. They're yeah. hiding shares in ETFs. They're hiding failures to deliver. They're hiding... Um, they're, they're, they're bypassing short sales restrictions by shorting ETFs. It's, uh, it's very slimy. So, so can't these hedge funds just wait it out? Do they, can't they just never cover the shares if they can just wait? Yeah. So there's a couple reasons that won't happen. First, I just want to, I, I lose track of it. Uh, so CNBC, there was a Congress hearing about everything that's going on around GameStop yesterday. Uh, CNBC uploaded a video of that uh, that hearing. They, as you may not be surprised to hear, it was a several-hour video. Um, it was the the original video is four hours and thirty-seven minutes. Uh, the CNBC video is four hours and uh, seventeen minutes. So we're missing about twenty minutes. And would you like to guess what uh, what they were the Congress was talking about during those twenty minutes? How much money they're gonna get from? <laughs> No, what are they talking about? They're talking about Citadel. And basically, it's all the things that these shorts don't want to get out. Um, basically, Congress condemned Citadel and more or less said they're not worth saving and, and that basically questioning some of their their questionable business practices, um, especially as it relates to Robinhood. And there's just a, they do a lot of sketchy stuff. And Congress was talking about it. And CNBC, who, of course, uh, you know, I don't know who directly owns them, but I know there's some common ownership interest. Uh, they just spliced out those parts because they don't want the public knowing uh, what's really going on. And it's disgusting. Yeah. And that just goes back to media manipulation. Manipulation. I mean, it's something that we take for granted. We see what we see, the information that's given out to us, and we take it often thinking, okay, they have our best interests in mind, but that's not the case. I mean, ever since news went 24-7, uh, this is something one of my professors, one of my favorite professors here, he's a software engineer, um, explained to, to our class was pretty much once news became 24-7, it was no longer about the news anymore. It wasn't about the breaking news that we needed to know. It became you know, a money-hungry kind of what's going to get us views, clicks, what's going to keep our attention on that news network the longest. And that's why we have all these now clickbait headlines and, and whatnot. And hundred percent. And that's kind of what we're seeing with, with all of this. And I do think obviously GameStop brought a lot of this to light, but what's, what's worrying me is that because a lot of it is media manipulation and controlling the narrative is really quickly GameStop went off the air. Any news about it was stopped any yeah. article, like it blew up very quickly on, on everywhere, you know, whether it was social media, people were angry about it and, and blowing up, you know, GameStop on, on Twitter, on Reddit, on, on Instagram and all this news about it. Everyone got riled up and, and everybody supported the idea of screw these big companies, like manipulating the market pretty much. Yeah, and then next exactly. thing you know, it's got next thing, you know, it's gone. There's no, there's no one's talking about it anymore besides, uh, you know, us, people that are actually interested in, 
this is a huge problem, you know, which is probably another reason why, you know, crypto is going to be more and more uh, accepted and, and bought into is just because of, of things like this. You know, it's like, if you can just short, if you can force a company to go bankrupt in order to get a quick profit, it's like, like, how is this legal? You know, how is this allowed? And even if that was legal, like, which is, it is legal, but like, even if that's going to be legal, like they should have to pay taxes on that. <laughs> they, if they, they, let me just put it this way. They essentially, not an individual company, but as a whole, the shorters sold at a very minimum, they sold more than the entire value of the company and they get to keep it with no taxes. Imagine selling a company tax-free. <laughs> you can only do that if you're a hedge fund. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, not, not literally like, I could do that as a retail trader, I, I guess. Uh, I mean, not really, but that you, you could benefit from a company going bankrupt as a retail trader. Not that you should, uh, not that you should encourage it, but uh, hedge funds are the ones that are able to do it the most easily and get away with it uh, with the least issues. And simply because they have the capital to support them. Yeah. And they're going to pay the fees. You know, if they manipulate certain regulations from the SEC, that's a flat $10,000 fine. If they made a billion dollars off that trade, they're not going to care. I could do yeah. the same exact violation for a much smaller amount of money and get the same $10,000 fine that could be more than my, my earnings. It's not the right system. And that's because the people who write these regulations at the SEC are the same assholes who do this bullshit on Wall Street. They, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like a revolving door. They have people coming in and out, making the regulations that make it easier for them. And then at the same time, uh, being able to make the money themselves. Yeah, I love I love seeing like Microsoft board member is also now on the board of, you know, this financial company or this, you know, they're now a, a regulator. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Like Ajit Pai, the biggest asshole ever to live, like in charge of the SEC and he's a Verizon executive. Yeah, that's unreal. That's unreal. A lot of shady, shifty stuff going on. And it's just thrown under the rug because we just don't hear about it. We, we just don't have access to that information. I didn't answer your question. I'm realizing. Sorry. <laughs> like, what, what question? I don't even remember. <laughs> Basically, why can't the shorts hold forever? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I started explaining it. And as normal, I went on a tangent. I, I'm really bad about that. Um, there's two reasons. Uh, the first reason is they have to pay interest on the shorts, their the shares they're borrowing um that interest can go up when the shares are more volatile they're bleeding millions of dollars a day just keeping the price the same additionally there's so much evidence that this price is manipulated basically like the price wouldn't stay this low unless they were bleeding money keeping it this low um which we there's a lot of evidence they're doing that I, i could get into a little more but basically they're losing money just having the price stay where it is even if they weren't doing anything they have to pay interest so they're bleeding a lot of money so are companies you know, the people that are shorting you know the hedge funds the banks that are shorting GameStop when you say they're bleeding money they're bleeding money trying to cover as many shares as they can correct no no one's covering they have to pay interest they have to do short attacks they have to borrow more shares there's all types of stuff they're doing to keep the price down um no it as far as I'm concerned, nobody meaningful has covered yet, in, in my opinion, uh, based on what I've read and the publicly available data. Uh, I think some shorts have been hidden, which there's a lot of evidence of, but I don't think any of the big players have covered at all. And 
believe there's a lot of evidence that their short positions have increased. Uh, there's a new DTC regulation that went into effect yesterday, I think, around 4 p.m., that uh, the DTC um, previously would collect uh, reports on uh, holdings from member companies every month and could theoretically ask for additional collateral for expensive trades. The downside to this is a company like Melvin Capital is incentivized to spread themselves as thinly as they need to to push down the GameStop price. Because if they're going bankrupt, they don't care if they spend that money before the short squeeze or after. They would rather, well, they, they do. They would rather spend it before to avoid the short squeeze happening at all. The problem mm-hmm. then is when the short squeeze finally happens, the DTC comes to Melvin Capital and says, okay, you have to cover. And they say, whoops, we're out of money. And then the DTCC is on, or their brokerage first, but then, because um, I don't, Melvin Capital isn't directly a DTCC member, but their brokerage would have to cover for them. And then eventually the last person in the chain is the DTCC would have to cover any trades that were defaulted. So Citadel, who's a market maker, also has some skin in the game here. And uh, they would be incentivized to spread themselves thin to try to make GameStop go down because if they go bankrupt, they don't have the money anyway. It doesn't matter where it went. Might as well go out kicking and screaming (laughs) but this new dtc regulation is they can ask any company at any time for any reason for a report and they have to basically provide and then the dtcc can request additional liquidity and they can they have to provide that liquidity within one hour so this is basically so so this is a benefit this is good this is good this is the dtc covering their own ass because they're expecting some serious shit to go down very soon and remember what i said about these guys all being assholes who write the regulations they wouldn't be adding regulations unless they were going to use them and they needed to cover their own ass and the dtc covering their own ass right now is good for the retail traders who want to see the stock squeeze and uh Tomorrow's a really important day for that. Why is that? <laughs> Tomorrow specifically is uh, the quadruple witching day. Yeah. So first things first, can you explain what the DTCC is? Or at least just at least just the name. It's probably something trading commission, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's uh what does it stand for? Crap. Uh sorry, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. It's basically the big backbone. Um where basically so the, the structure is you have traders which could be retail or a hedge fund they work with a brokerage firm who has to then interface with a clearing house and then the dtc is the big clearing house basically runs the 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 economy so we know companies these hedge funds still have a lot of short in gamestop how come the infinite squeeze which has only happened a couple times, but not even to this extent. I don't think an infinite squeeze has ever happened. I don't know the exact definition of what makes it an infinite squeeze. There's two types of squeezes here. There's the the gamma squeeze and the short squeeze. Those terms have been thrown around pretty interchangeably. The infinite short squeeze, I think, is just a result of like the entire company being shorted and then some. Mm -hmm. I think it's the infinite aspect. Uh, I thought it was the, the price can go infinitely high if they're not being covered. Yeah, it, it could. Uh, I think, yeah, I think, I, I, I don't know enough about the semantics of it. But yeah, the price could also go infinitely high. That is true. Okay, so what was the situation then? 
with the first GameStop spike. I mean, the stock was trading at $4 last year and quickly rose to 40, 50. And then we, we saw our first spike a couple months ago at 300 something. So I'm pretty confident that the first spike, you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, but this is from information. We're all, we're all speculating here. It's all speculation. <laughs> Disclosure. <laughs> I'm confident that that was all just a result of, of two things. The hype for a squeeze, first of all, um, is in, important. Uh, oh, three things. So there was, there was some hype about a squeeze. People wanted to get in if a squeeze was going to happen. Additionally, games what was really the catalyst you know obviously the shorts being there at all but then gamestop um had a bunch of good news for the company um that was good for their future which can obviously drive the price up and as a result we have something called the gamma squeezing which i referred to and if you're a market maker you're required to be so those are like the big institutional firms that they write most of the options um they are required to remain delta neutral on positions meaning they make a profit off of like the movement of securities but they can't make a profit off of sorry they, they make a profit off of the, like the transactions not off, they sh- aren't allowed to make a meaningful profit off of a stock going up or down um because they're in basically too much of a powerful position for for that is my understanding at least and remaining delta neutral uh can be difficult so let me pull up some options uh my options on gamestop right now so i have two options expiring tomorrow but those are going to have no delta probably so let me look at my option that expires next friday so my delta on this option uh is five point uh sorry zero point zero five nine one what that means is uh for every dollar that the gamestop price goes up my option is going to increase at a premium. The the premium is going to increase by $5, say 5.9 cents a share. So more than likely, the person who sold me this option is uh, a market maker like Citadel. And when they sell that option, in order to remain Delta neutral, they actually have to buy 5.9 shares on the open market so that if GameStop goes up, um, they lose they lose 5.9 on my contract, but they make it back on the shares. So overall, they make it make a pro or they, they remain delta neutral. The thing is, I got this contract for let me see, two hundred sixty bucks. That's slightly more than GameStop's trading for. And as a result, I forced a market maker to buy five point nine shares on the open market. Um, and that is a really really out of the money call. Uh, the ones that are in the money are even more expensive. You know, you could have a much higher delta. That delta is going to go up more and more the closer you get to the strike price of your contract. Um, and this was something that you know Reddit kind of figured out was a, a way that your money can have a larger influence on the market, and it allowed them to kind of get into the market the same way the the big boys are. You know. And then with that spike in January, that was a like huge gamma squeezing. And I don't think we saw any short squeezing. I don't think, you know, if there were a few people that looked like that got forced bought on positions. Um, but I don't think that, uh, you know, there was any major short squeezing that happened in January. And then they attacked the price back down extremely 
and uh, I think kind of to push the narrative that the short squeeze had was over and that was it. But that wasn't yeah. the case. The shorts didn't cover. They lied and said they covered. They kind of made a whole narrative where the price went back down and now the FINRA data says they're not shorting. But the FINRA data is not reliable because they can instead short ETFs. They can lie. They can just straight up lie on the FINRA data. And the fine is, you know, a drop in the bucket. Um, there's <laughs> a lot of things they can do. And the most important thing for them is for people to get bored. They want people to get bored and leave. So they're doing these fake squeezes and pushing the price down. They want people to sell because every person that sells helps them. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that was kind of a fake drop we saw on the price and all of those major drops have been with almost no volume meaning when the price of a share goes up a lot or down a lot you want to see a a reasonable amount of volume behind that to show the price really dropped that big drop we saw in january had literally almost no value compared to like the buying pressure that brought it up and that's true of every drop every major drop we've seen um like i explained before yeah, so they're pretty much banking the people that are shorting. They're banking on selling us this information that says, "Hey, it's going up today for yeah, it's going up right now," and they're banking on individual traders to to sell their shares pretty much at mm-hmm. this this price. Um, yep. That's this is this quote quote like fake squeeze, um, hoping that people kind of catch the bait of all right, I'm going to pull out of this position. But you're saying that... Especially when it starts to drop, you know? Yep. Like, if you see a share that was dropped from 400 to two, Sorry, from 400 to 100, and it was trading at, like, 10 a month ago, a lot of people are going to sell. Yeah, exactly. Because people do want their profits. But enough people stay in, then, you know, eventually interest payments, and they're going to have to cover all their shares at some point is what the goal is of people that are sticking out. Yeah. So I mentioned quadruple day and that's tomorrow. And uh, that means that's the day that all four like stock securities expire on the same uh, day. So there's like regular witching and double witching as well. Uh, so the witching hour, I think is just considered to be when one is expiring and they have double, triple and quadruple. So quadruple is the highest tier. Uh, and that means that, um, let me, what is it? So it's stock options, stop, stock, int, uh, index options, uh, stock index futures and stock futures all expire tomorrow. And just based on, I don't know, I know a good amount about options, but not the other three. Uh, but I guess it's fairly rare happens a few times a year when they all expire on the same Friday. Um, mm-hmm. And any amount of, you know, witching, as you would call it, can cause crazy volatility in the market. The quadruple witching, of course, is the highest amount of volatility. And this isn't saying GameStop is going to go up or go down, but it's saying that there's a huge amount of volatility that happens on a day like tomorrow. And it could be a portion of the catalyst we need to uh, to get GameStop up to a, a fair price and, and get the shorts squeezed out. Mm-hmm. So you're saying tomorrow is going to be like a day of reckoning pretty much for it's either going to go up or down because they're going to be... I don't want to say it like that. It's important to set specific because all they have to do is burn a few hundred million dollars and they can keep bur- kicking this can down the road. Um, yeah. 
they I, so I don't want to say if it doesn't happen tomorrow, then it's never going to happen. What I will say is I like this week was a week that a lot of people were expecting the squeeze to happen. Tomorrow is a date that a lot of people were expecting the squeeze to happen. Now it's important to say that the squeeze happening tomorrow is very vague since um, there's a number of, you know, there, there's a lot of variables here and saying the squeeze happens tomorrow could just mean it's the very beginning. It could, it could be also completely wrong though. Mm -hmm. it's important to to take anything with a grain of salt but uh i I think there's a good chance we see some upward movement tomorrow uh if we 200 is kind of the battleground we want to stay at if we don't want to let it drop below 200 uh, because the shorts have a bunch of puts set up so if it drops below 200 it'll continue to drop more Mm -hmm. um but if it closes above 200, I, I think we'll see some some upwards gamma next week. It's it's really tough to say, and I'm confident that there isn't a way out for the shorts at this point. So I'm going to keep holding. I have a good number of shares, and I've been buying option contracts every week. And I just rolled options, or not all of them, but some of them from this week into next week. Um, basically, you know, selling the positions I have now uh, and, and buying them back at, at a different strike price next week because I think there's a chance we see some squeezing tomorrow, but I don't think almost certainly we're not going to see everything happen tomorrow. Uh, the Volkswagen squeeze lasted several days. So how does that work with the weekend coming up? No trading. Yeah, so the weekends are tough. <laughs> um, so what happens is, for options that are executed that are in the money meaning anyone who bought an option for a price that you know is in the money when it closes on friday they're they're going to probably want to execute it not all options are executed but the vast majority of in the money options should be executed um and that puts buying pressure on the market You you go to a market maker and say okay i want those 100 shares they have to buy them if they didn't have them and that's called writing a naked uh call option smart traders shouldn't do that but market makers aren't you know necessarily the smartest they're just it's like uh it's like a caveman hitting something with a club like a a caveman could easily take on a computer um with a large enough stick that's basically how uh the stock market works as soon as we see this forced buy-in there's a lot of things that could happen i think it's unlikely we see any government involvement here um and there's a lot of catalysts that could trigger it i think uh, like one of the really good catalysts would be uh, if they recalled the shares for counting for a vote so like if they nominated ryan cohen as the ceo of gamestop they would have to have a vote on that and they would have to call the shares in uh in order to count them and they would have to close out the short positions for that to happen that could be a catalyst we need to see the squeeze there's a lot of other things that can happen as well. GameStop re- announces their uh, 2020 Q4 earnings uh, on Tuesday. And uh, I expect them to be maybe not like really good because obviously the the media craze didn't happen until 2021. I think we could see really good 2021 Q1 numbers in a few months. But it's important to note that the Q4 numbers for last year included the new console releases, which a lot of people go to GameStop for. You know, the PS5 is sold out everywhere. GameStop sells a lot of PS5s. 
I think their sales are going to be, because that's the thing, the, these people who are doing the analysis for what they think the stocks are worth on Wall Street, they don't necessarily bring that into account. They're like, oh, well, GameStop hasn't done well for years. It's like, well, no major console has been released for like two years. They do the best with their console release cycles. There was a console release cycle timed pretty well with all this happening. So we could, on Tuesday, they could totally blow us out of the water with how much money they made in 2020. I don't think they will. I think it'll be good, but not great. Uh, but if they blow us out of the water, that could be the squeeze catalyst alone. There's a lot of things that could happen. Yeah, and I, I did hear that GameStop is reevaluating their their current strategies and business. Oh, their their pictures online of their new stores—they're totally revolutionizing it. I ordered a T-shirt on GameStop, and it showed up at my house in 45 minutes. It was cheaper and faster than Amazon. Really? Yeah. That's crazy! Yeah, wow, it's really good. They're doing something right. I mean, they're bringing on a lot of people to kind of restructure GameStop in order to yeah, keep Yeah, are alive. you familiar with Ryan Cohen? Uh, a little bit. Um, I've looked at... Chewy was his previous company. Yeah, yeah. And he's trying to restructure it, right? Or no, did are they, did GameStop bring him in or are they trying to bring him in? So he bought like like 5% of the shares on the open market and you know bought himself a seat on the board by doing so. Uh, yep. And he, he got two or three seats total. And... They just put him in charge of a task force for basically transitioning to e-commerce. And that's what he did with Chewy. And he turned Chewy into a like three point, sorry, I think a $31 billion company. Yeah, that's good news. Yeah. And, and Pet Space is competing with so many people. Like, first of all, like PetSmart and Petco are competition as well as local places but even amazon and local grocery stores are a form of competition for a pet food company you know yeah um so he the pet food pet toy industry is like a 40 billion dollar a year industry he turned chewy which is a company that exists in that space and has competition from some of the largest companies in the world you know being amazon a lot of people can just buy everything on Amazon. He turned his company into a four point, sorry, again, I keep saying that, I think a $41 billion company in a $40 billion a year industry. Uh, gaming is a much bigger industry and there's also uh, a lot less competition. Gamers don't like Amazon. Like Amazon's good for a lot of stuff. Games is one of the things I think it's the worst at. Mm-hmm. Um, people like GameStop, especially now that like so look at it this way like a lot of people like to have their physical games even though there's downloads available especially for like really popular games people like to have a physical copy if it's being released on a specific day and you have to order it from amazon with two-day shipping or gamestop could deliver to your house within 30 minutes like and additionally which (laughs) which this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy but um there's been some fear that gamestop could theoretically sell the shorts some more shares and raise funding and bail out the shorts now it doesn't really make sense for them to do this financially they could do it if they were like corrupt but realistically people were saying that GameStop wants the squeeze to happen one way or another even if they don't directly profit off of it uh because first they don't want as many shorts in their company they want um you know their stock to be trading at fair value and i think fair value is higher than where it is now i, I think fair values in the five hundred to maybe 
1500 range wow, really? uh, realistically okay. based on uh, their sales and their projected sales and the changes happening in the company if if the squeeze works gamestop is going to have the most wealthy and most loyal uh customers of any company i think in the world <laughs> um just like the i've been on these subreddits a lot and i'm sure you've glanced at them at least but people are, are insane in these and, and they're really passionate about gamestop yeah big community that really like don't mess with our game <laughs> don't mess with our our you know what we're passionate about pretty much i mean gamers are a passionate group and you know that's one thing i love from that's one thing i love about this whole thing is that i love that it's gamestop you know i love that it's gamestop that is being targeted because of the community behind it mm -hmm. like there, if it was anything if it was any other company i don't know if th this whole situation would be as blown out as it is i, I just love that it's gamestop you know, like you're like you're mentioning with the people, and I'm sure you heard about like AMC and stuff. Mm -hmm. Sorry to anybody who invested in AMC. At least in my opinion, those there's no way those weren't a distraction because, like, that's what I thought as well. Yeah, because here's the thing. Like, I get it. Like, a lot of people, not to be not just condescending, a lot of people aren't smart, and. A lot of people, and this is something I've had a problem with in crypto as well, and it drives me crazy. Like people don't want to buy bitcoins because they're fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> like they want to buy some other shit coin, is what they're often <laughs> called, some shitty crypto. And uh, I'll be like, first of all, if you're gonna be, if you want a metric like that at all, you want to be looking at the market cap, not the cost per share or in crypto's case the cost per coin because that, that number is arbitrary <laughs> like warren buffett's uh stock the berkshire hathaway a sh stock is like 300 grand it's not 300 yeah. grand because it's better than other stocks it's because he wants it to be 300 grand so he didn't issue a lot of them <laughs> yeah uh and it's the same with cryptos you know you don't have to buy a Bitcoin, buy 0.0001 Bitcoins. So when GameStop went from $5 to $400, people, well, the rational thing to do is to buy GameStop because the squeeze hasn't happened yet. And the more people that buy it, the more likely the squeeze will happen. People instead said, well, it's another $5 stock that has a lot of short interest. And I don't know, honestly, if some Redditor came up with this because they felt like they missed the GameStop boat or if the hedge funds themselves came up with this to distract from GameStop. Either way, I think the hedge funds definitely helped push the narrative after it came out that, oh, buy AMC, buy AMC. Yeah. Even at the beginning, AMC was 30% shorted, which is pretty like standard. I mean, it's, it's a heavy short, but that's like a standard heavy short. This would be like if like Lamborghini was give, giving away free cars and like or Ferrari, and let's say they ran out of red ones. So people were like, they have red cars at Honda, and people are like, yeah, I mean, red is my favorite color. That's basically <laughs> how I feel people buying AMC. Like, they didn't, they couldn't get it in at five dollars. So instead, they kind of ruined the momentum with uh, with all these distractions, and because they wanted them to squeeze. And even if AMC did squeeze it's not going to be anything like GameStop. Like Volkswagen was like 30% shorted. I want to say when it's quotes, GameStop was 140. 
Yeah. Oh, so the difference between how much shorted GameStop and AMC were was one entire company. <laughs> it's into it. Like we both follow Wall Street bets, I'm assuming. And that's kind of been the 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 source for a lot of people looking for people that are doing their due diligence and their research. And there's a lot of good that happens on the subreddit, but in light of GameStop on the subreddit, people were saying that they were just bots being so many churn, churning out, you know, buy AMC, buy Nokia, buy all these other ones. And the second that happened, I was like, GameStop's happening. It's yeah. happening. Like don't diverge is, from what's happening right now. I know that bought AMC and like, we're so proud of it. And we're, posting rocket emojis diamond hands go to the moon i'm like you're just kind of an idiot like like there's no reason you have to miss it like if if wall street bets wants to squeeze amc after gamestop go ahead there's no <laughs> nothing stopping them <laughs> if it's stupid that gamestop you know wall street bets hasn't done to my knowledge they haven't done any big short squeezes like it's not like a regular thing and then they start to short squeeze one and suddenly there's five stocks that everybody's got to be short squeezing. Like, come on. Like anyone who falls for that shouldn't be using the stock market. It's a whole quick money, you know, scheme. Like the people that are buying into those are like you said, just trying to buy it at a low value, hoping that yeah. it happens again. But that's like, but like, let's look at it this way. A realistic squeeze for AMC, if perfectly executed, let's say they got the shares to a thousand dollars. That would be insane. If GameStop goes from like 50, which is like honestly like probably higher than when AMC first like started being pumped, it was yeah. um, 50 bucks. I realistically think that I don't think it's likely. I don't want to sound nuts. I don't think it's impossible for GameStop shares to hit a million dollars. That's insane. That's incredible. Like this money exists. Like if every member of like Wall Street bets became a millionaire <laughs> the total number of millionaires in the world would go up by like 0.2 percent what wait 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 a minute that's not that seems like a very like an awfully low number you're saying if you everybody in that, wall street that one i'm trying to find it i i read this a while ago but like because there's there's over three million people on that subreddit i think now oh dude it's way more and that, that the subreddit blew <laughs> up. Is it? Is it more than that now? I mean, I haven't. I haven't been on there in a second. Let me Let check. Me I, I've been honestly on r slash gme a lot too. Is another good one. Um, yeah. Wall Street Bets is at nine point six million. I want to say when Jeez. I read that post, it was lower, but like the numbers, it's it still orders of magnitude. Like if everybody, yeah. GameStop could theoretically trade for two million dollars a share before all involved companies go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. and wow. max out their insurance why do you think on on wall street bets itself do you think it's too saturated now that we're just not seeing the same hype as before on the whole trading and uh, squeeze potential squeeze yeah i mean the immediate excitement GameStop has uh on, on for some people uh not for me not for everyone there's still a lot of stuff on Wall Street bets, especially on days where GameStop moves a lot, but on a day mm -hmm. like today where it was relatively sideways trading and huge drops or, or huge gains, uh, well, you know, Wall Street bets has other stocks that people talk about. It's always mm -hmm. been kind of whatever. Um, and with like, you know, so GME formed and this specifically GameStop and 
has a lot i want to say more due diligence but like the the good stuff a lot ends up on wall street bets for the Mm -hmm. most part um there's a list here i can send you um i don't know where i put zoom but uh, in a second let's hop off of uh gamestop itself and go over to talk about robin hood oh yeah for sure i just sent you a list that i like uh it's updated like at least daily for the most part excluding the weekends uh sometimes including the weekends uh with just due diligence posts that are usually pretty high i love that uh yeah I, i love this this is what been my go-to almost every link on this page uh is like super important like if you scroll down here there's a uh, some of these the headlines do a good job like robin hood this is a good transition robin hood never owned any gamestop shares and was slapped with a three billion dollar margin call that's one of the problems here like game robin hood was never buying the shares which essentially means they were short selling in themselves wow um, you know, here's the CNBC tem- tampered with full Congress video while posting it online, removing parts they didn't want the public to hear. Like, that's another, uh, that's what I talked about regarding, like, that. that's going to have in-depth info on what they removed and, like, when the timestamps were. Here's an interesting, like, theory someone posted. Citadel themselves could drop the, the short squeeze bomb. Um, it, it's possible that they bought after the the first squeeze you know options prices don't necessarily move directly with the stock so it's possible after the first squeeze dropped they bought up a huge number of expensive option calls and then they could actually trigger the squeeze if they wanted to and it's all speculation on whether it would make sense to do this but uh Mm the possibilities exist because we're in uncharted waters as far as the entire stock market goes the institutions alone currently own 136%, not to be confused with the 140% uh, afloat um, shorts. That's This is totally different. This is just saying institutions alone own more than the whole company. <laughs> wow. Crazy. And is, how does that even, how does it even work? Like, cause you, you just so said that's I, not included. If I buy shorts. a share um, on Robinhood, they can loan it to somebody who wants to short it. So somebody using the same clearinghouse or brokerage wants to short that share, they can, Robinhood will loan them mine and collect interest on it. And at a certain point, when the price is going up, Robinhood's either gonna say, give us back that share, like we wanna make sure you're good for it, or you could give us more money to prove you're good for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they bought that share, they could sell it to you. Sorry, they they are borrowed the share, and then they could sell it to you. So you and me now own the same share of GameStop. <laughs> um, and like you might physically have it, but I don't anymore. But the thing is, Robinson still has to give me one. It's not the worst thing in the world, but then they could loan yours out too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then Drew Rubin could buy it, and then they could <laughs> loan it out again. Uh, that's how we see the short percent of flow being like 500%. Wow. So given Robinhood being kind of the go-to for a while, beginner friendly trading app that made everything convenient, you know, it was very, Hey, one click sign up, put your money in, you start trading, you know? Yep. 
what's your take on the whole stopping the buying uh, yeah stopping the buying of the gamestop shares so I, I've already opened a Fidelity account. I own about half my GameStop shares, a little less than half in Fidelity. The only reason I haven't closed my Robinhood account right now is because I don't want to have my uh, securities stuck in limbo if the squeeze happens. Um, so as soon as GameStop either squeezes or doesn't, um, I'm going to migrate everything over to fidelity and close my Robinhood account i think that um regardless of whether it was you know trying to help citadel or actual liquidity issues or you know there's a number of things it could be it could be you know the fact that they didn't own the shares and were margin called because they hadn't bought any shares and the price kept going up and they were in apparently in a $3 billion margin call, um, regardless of what it is, I think, uh, what, what is it? Vlad, uh, Tevent. I don't know his last name. Yeah. I forget his last Um, name as well. But anyways, he's a liar. Uh, he's fraud. (laughs) I think he belongs in prison. Uh, I never want to do business with him or any companies associated with again. I think there's a good chance it was straight market manipulation because for people who don't know, uh, hood doesn't make money off of, let me rephrase robin hood makes money off of your trades but not from you they make that money from citadel uh they float all of the trades that happen on the robin hood app through citadel basically giving them almost insider data on retail <laughs> trades and then citadel pay- pays for this information so that's like a bad business model to begin <laughs> with um and it gives them heavy incentives to help Citadel by stopping buying on Robinhood. But you could still sell because that w- that's great for Citadel. On top of that, there's been evidence that when you buy, like, like they, they, were, they were not buying the shares. The shares they were buying, uh, it's a little gray area. I need to read, read the article again. But something about how the shares that they were buying were being purchased on, on dark pools through Citadel so that they didn't affect the market price um, upward. But say, uh, but sells in Robinhood were pushed through uh, directly as market sells so that they had a negative influence on the price. So in Robinhood, if you're buying GameStop, you're not helping the price go up. But if you're selling it, you're pushing it down. Wow. It's a bad system uh, by bad people who want to make money. You know, Robinhood, the whole idea is take from the rich and give to the poor. And when really they're just another puppet in the pocket of these corrupt large corporations. Yeah. Let's swing back to kind of the media's role, not really the media's role, but given the big players that kind of control what the media says. And, and there's like, have you seen the social dilemma? Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've I highly it. recommend I know what it's about. Very unnerving. And I don't even know if it was there that I saw this, but actually I don't think it was, but nonetheless, you should watch it. Everyone listening should watch it. But I saw a video of, just clips of different news stations and it was literally a script that every single person was reading and it was word for word the same and that just goes to show like they're being fed this information to give us i mean if they were writing their own material (laughs) they wouldn't be saying the same thing word for word that's you know negative or whatever information they're trying to come across it's like that makes you think like what can you trust you know where and let me pose this question to you. Where do you get your information from? You know, how do you stay open-minded and how do you make sense of the media and the information you're given? 
so I'm partial to Reddit for a lot of my info, <laughs> which I know isn't necessarily, it doesn't sound traditional and it's not, uh, maybe not considered a reputable news source. And I hear that from my dad all the time. Well, we live in a world where the reputable news sources are all bullshit liars uh, who will say anything on the news to make more money. So I don't trust those corporations at all. I don't trust (laughs) really any major news corporation. It's they're just, I think they're all disgusting and even the best of them have ulterior motives. I think I like the concept of knowledge of the masses. Uh, and that's why uh, mm-hmm. part of the reason I like Reddit. Um, I also think crypto is an important piece in this area. I think we need to build a world um, with as little government intervention as possible because government intervention easily allows for corruption. Uh, regardless of whether you like government or not, it's objectively true that the more control your government has, the more control the rich are going to have in that society. Um, if we had the rich people, I mean, tell me this, why do private bankers print the public money? Because the system's broken. <laughs> if we had a system that wasn't broken and was cryptographically secure to the extent that it couldn't be broken. So I'm not talking about no government. I don't want anarchy, but I don't think the government should be in charge of the money. If we can have a safe system where the government isn't in charge of the money, I think that's great. People should still pay taxes. People should still do everything they do today with money. But I don't think that money should be controlled by the government, not in any situation. Um, Look at just all the places where hyperinflation has happened. The concept of fiat money, I think, is a failure. And we've built literally the entire world on fiat money, so nobody wants to admit it. But it's Mm -hmm. bad and it doesn't work. And the only winners are the people who don't have any. Yeah, wow. Interesting. Going off of the media and how, especially during COVID, a lot of, we're all stuck online. We're stuck in our homes and we have to get all our information online now. Not that we weren't able, you know, we weren't doing that before, but it's even more so now. Uh, Of course. How do you see like social media and the internet impacting not even just the financial markets, but kind of the way we talk about news, different events, news, and what's going on in the world. Very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think social media uh, is even worse than uh, traditional media in this way. And I don't see an immediate fix for it. Um, the, the reason I say social media is worse is because you have the same problem where it's totally profit driven. And despite being a different format, this situation isn't resolved. Um, Facebook just wants to make as much money and they don't care if they're feeding you false information or it's an echo chamber. Facebook's going to give you articles you like. Facebook has been caught numerous times, like recommending anti-vaxxer articles, you know, albeit to people who it knows are already anti-vaxxers, but it creates an echo chamber where if you're on Facebook and you're an anti-vaxxer and through you're not even currently like searching for anything and anti-vaxxer articles are all you're seeing, you're going to think you're right. It's going to cause yeah. confirmation bias in these individuals, which is even more dangerous than the traditional media. The traditional media might push the agendas of these large corporations. Um, these social media companies are the large corporations that we're worried about. <laughs> and they're, they're also able to sell this service to any other large corporation who's willing to pay for it. And that's a really dangerous thing that we live in a world where 
people get a lot of their information from social media and social media is a platform that is both entirely controlled by private companies, but also uh, subject to bias and uh, possibly subjective to, yeah. Subjective you to, get, you get to bias. kind of the concept of what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just as biased. Bias and they're going to do things like recommend content for you, which causes content uh, confirmation bias. And uh, I think this is a huge problem. Uh, I don't like social media in general. I don't use almost any social media. Um, like I have Snapchat because like a large number of people seem to only – to use it as their only form of communication yeah yeah <laughs> uh, which is fine like i'm definitely I, one, i'm one of those people yeah yeah like I, I text you on it like i don't mind like it's a lot of people do it but i'm not going to use social media to an extent i don't need to like most of the apps mm-hmm. on my phone are open source because i don't trust big tech i love the stuff that big tech comes up with but i hate the companies and profit streams i'd rather pay a thousand bucks a month for all the google services with a hundred percent confidence that they're not using my data than than to use it and have them use my data. I mean, I run like my Kubernetes cluster. One of the things I run on there, I have a NextCloud server, which is an open source, basically Google Drive replacement that I use to store my files, my calendar, my phone contacts synced through it. My pictures are all synced through it. I have all the functionality and more, at least for me, uh, than what Google gives you, at least to an extent. And I have the infrastructure in my basement i know this obviously is not the right model for everyone but i think people should be given a choice and i think that i mean look at it this way google provides software that is comparable if not better than like let's look at specifically google docs versus like microsoft uh office microsoft office is like 150 dollars Google Drive is basically the same thing, but it's free and even has more features like document sharing. Mm-hmm. Why is that free if they're, if it's better than a product, product that sells for $150? That's because Google, by you using this product, is going to profit orders of magnitude more than $150 by using it. And if that doesn't terrify the people using the software, then it should. Yeah, it's the whole situation of it's not really free. It's not. Free. It's like you're you're using this service. If it says it's free, you have to think. All right, what am I giving this company? How are they making money off this? And more often than not, it's it's your attention, your information. They're they're selling you ads. They're selling you these. They're literally not telling you what to think, but they're showing you things that they know is going to get a reaction from you on social media and on on Facebook and Google and all this stuff that that they know is going to drive clicks and reactions and and give them profits through the people and other companies and services that are buying into or paying Google to use your information. You know, they're fighting for your attention in essence. And one of the things that you get out of watching something like The Social Dilemma, which honestly, I'm so thankful for for Netflix for putting something like that out there, even though it was very short lived in terms of the the impact it had on, I feel like most people is very like, oh, this is scary, but I'm going to still do all these things anyways, is I don't want to say they exposed what social media does, but they really brought to light and made you think like, you know, how it is that you're being targeted by these big companies. And, and one of the things you mentioned too, is, is the whole, you know, social media, like Facebook is, or can be an echo chamber where you're just confirming what you already believe, you know, 
And if you go on Google and take you and I, for example, we have vastly different search histories, vastly different spheres of what Google classifies for like us under. Uh, if we Googled the same thing, we're going to be showing different results. Yep. And that's not like, it's not like Google is trying to manipulate something necessarily on purpose. It's just, that's how their business model works. And that's what it leads to. It's the whole, the algorithms that Google themselves don't even know yeah, necessarily the how is, they work because there's so they much do data. know what they're manipulating. Like I want to say it was yeah well, in, in the big picture. Definitely. There was some quote from some woman. I want to say it was from Google. Uh, that was like a higher up that she said it's something along the lines of what can we do at Google to make sure Trump doesn't win the election? Like that's a problem that they're like, that that's such a casual thing for a Google executive to say like, yeah. okay, well, we're Google. So like probably we can swing the election. Like what's the best way to do that? <laughs> like one of the on. things that I, I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk politics. Oh, me either. Sorry to bring it up, but like, yeah, no, totally fine. <laughs> I want to bring up one point. <laughs> um, Cause I thought the same thing is like, you know, you look at social media and it might just be the sphere that I myself am in and that you're in. I know you're not use social media that often, but I use social media frequently. And once all the media started to, and I'm not, a, I'm not a Trump supporter. I don't like Trump. I don't like Biden. I think the whole thing's fucked. I I, we need more than a two party. We need more than a two party system, but in, in a weird way, I mean, the social media networks pretty much attempted to manipulate the election. We're only able to see information that is on our news feeds and on our social media feeds. And when all that information is curated articles on orange, bad, orange man, bad, you know, Biden, good, like all this stuff, then, then that's the, that's what people are going to think. And it's just like, how do people not see that? How, how do people not understand that we're being I targeted? Hate these things. The current system. I agree with you completely. Yeah. <laughs> a great example of that is: Did you see the article? You, you know how big it was blowing up, like when people found out about the children in cages. I, I'm sure that that's more than enough. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, it's a perfect example of media manipulation, and I would like to think that this point is a non-bias issue i think this is an objective fact that people who disregard it who are most people are going to disregard this uh are are just blind to what's really going on in society anyway so trump i'm sure everybody remembers how much the media was talking about uh the children in cages they use the term concentration camps and all these you know really nasty words thrown around painting really bad pictures i'm sure you remember that trump didn't implement those like the obama administration did and it (laughs) was actually biden's special project (laughs) yeah and it's just it's just what we're you know it's the way that they word these headlines and then it's just they just opened them back up last week right like they were like restricted because of covid um since biden is in office they're no longer concentration camps now they are uh and i quote facilities responsible for caring for migrant children yeah (laughs) do you think the cages are gone no (laughs) same shit new name you know it's just it's just a turd that's polished you know it's country is better now because the biden is in office that's the sentiment that they want to push 
Yeah, it's it's really incredible just how how much influence the media has. Like the the beginning of 2020, uh, 2020, the uh, Trump, you know, remember he almost called caused World War Three. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that got so much news despite being a pretty regular thing that like every president in office does. Uh, yeah. Biden has had the same number of drone strikes, but they're not on the the news anymore because it's a Democrat doing it. Obama blew up like the only children's hospital in Syria and no one knows about it. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, because like terrorists were hiding in it. So like yeah. they blew it up and it was like the only or the largest children's hospital in Syria. Nobody wow. knows about that because it wasn't done by a Republican. So it wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't reported. Yeah. Exactly. But well, that's, that's, that's the country you live in. Sorry, right I, now, I know you don't want to go into politics. Feel free to. No, it has to that. be, it has to be said. I'm not going to cut it. No, no way. I mean, I love the whole, I, I love the whole open-minded, like you need to talk about these things for them to get out. You know, I, these to things. Be clear, need to be I don't want to about. defend Trump at all. He's an asshole as well, but yeah. Uh, it pisses me off to see the media doing these things, which is why yeah. in a lot of scenarios I end up being Trump's devil as advocate because I'm like, yeah. okay, well, Trump did this, but you see what the shit Obama did? I'm not yeah. defending Trump when I do that. And I think a lot of people hear people say that stuff and say, oh, this is a Trump supporter. What a fucking idiot. Um, I don't want to support Trump when I say that. I want to show people how broken the world we live in is. Exactly. And I want to show people that they're being treated like sheep by uh, by the the large companies controlling the world uh and it, it really is true let's let's end this off on we live in a crazy crazy world Jacob, <laughs> what does it what does it mean to you to make the world a better place oh i think that making the world a better place is bringing the power into like the the largest masses of people and like so i'm when I say that I'm like not a proponent of taxing the rich, like people always say tax the rich, make the rich pay their fair share. Uh, the rich do pay their fair share for anybody who has a basic understanding of math. Like the rich pay most of the taxes, like literally like the top 1% pays like, like 40% of all of the taxes. Uh, anyone who says the rich don't pay their fair share is lying or doesn't understand basic math. Uh, that's not the problem. And I'm not saying there isn't a problem. The problem is what we were talking about before, about how the whole the whole system's broken and the money's broken. And that's why we have this big divide of wealth. There's a website people can go to called, uh, I think it's WTF happened in 1971.com. <laughs> and the answer is, that's when Richard Nixon broke us off the gold standard and we went to fiat. And that's where you start to see up until 1971, um, the uh, let me let me pull it up because I want to quote it properly. Yep. Up until 1971, the productivity of workers and worker compensation were tied together, like you may expect. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. The amount workers got paid was proportional to how much work they were doing. Yeah. After 1971, uh, when we switched to fiat money, compensation basically hasn't changed since despite productivity going up, like, look at this graph, it's going to blow your mind. And I think that's the problem. So when I get frustrated at people saying, tax the rich, eat the rich, it's like, 
yeah, there's a problem with the wealth gap. There's a problem with the rich. The, the solution isn't the taxation, though. That's part of the problem. And by taxing the rich and redistributing the wealth, we're just basically, this would be like if you were, the, the tax the rich solution uh, is like trying to use a straw to siphon water out of a leaky boat. <laughs> Catch the holes first. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So, so, so what is your... So I guess my full answer is, I think we need to live in a world where people control the, the important aspects of society. And I know like democracy is a, theoretically how you could do that. But I think we'd all agree that democracy doesn't quite work in reality the way it does on paper. Obviously, democracy is important. But when you have a big government and you have representatives that can be bought, you have these situations where the people don't directly control the, every aspect of the country or any aspect of the country. When you get things like uh, crypto and uh, not that I'm the largest fan of things on the Ethereum chain, they even have something called the DAOs. It's a decentralized autonomous organization, which you can kind of think of like a, like a, like a company. And the DAO will issue tokens, governance tokens, and it can, they can be used for voting, similar to voting uh, as a shareholder. And these can be used for really, really advanced things. Like on Ethereum, there's ways to uh, take out loans against your Ethereum in a decentralized way. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. Like you don't have to go to a bank to take out a loan. When you go to a bank, and take out a loan, your money is not from other depositors. They basically create that money on the spot because we live in a world where specifically finances, I think is the first step in this, in this direction. And I think that's why Bitcoin and crypto is so important is that that brings the power out of the, like literally the richest companies in the world are like, you know, hedge funds, investment banks, and all that, like at least proportional to what they do for society, right? Like <laughs> yeah. Apple's like second largest company in the world, but at least they have output. A hedge fund doesn't do anything other than make more money. There's just so much that can be improved in our current system. Like if like like what I was saying with the the DAO, it's a totally decentralized organization that's literally directly run by the people. And crypto also allows for a lot more direct voting. So possibly, you know, having a higher degree of democracy can become much more possible from a government perspective as well. But uh, the fact that you could theoretically take out a loan against your your crypto, uh, meaning like if you have if you had 10K in Bitcoin, you could take out a loan against it. And that's what a lot of people do. Uh, but the general way to do that is you have to give your Bitcoin to a bank and they hold it and they give you cash. Mm -hmm. uh, there's more and more technologies being developed every day, like uh, MakerDAO is the one I'm currently referring to, that let you take out that loan completely autonomously and decentralized, meaning you don't have to trust a single person in the world, and there is no credit check, and you just get cash for your Ethereum. Mm -hmm. wow. And I think that is awesome, and I think that is something that is going to change the world we live in fundamentally. I think the something people can do to kind of get in on the ground floor of this is buy Bitcoin. I don't think we're at anywhere near seeing companies have companies have not stopped buying in companies have barely begun to buy in. Yep. Um, 
and for people who aren't aware, Bitcoin is currently the the eighth largest asset in the world. And there's, you know, so there's seven assets in front of it. It's five companies and then two metals. It's literally the list is gold, Apple, Saudi America, Microsoft, Amazon, silver, Google, and then Bitcoin. Wow. Those are the eight largest assets in the world. So I think that is the sign that people need to realize this isn't a joke. This isn't a meme. This isn't internet money. This is the future. And the reason so many companies like Tesla are buying it is because they don't want the dollars they're holding in the bank to be devalued mm -hmm. by deflation. And holding Bitcoin is their way to protect themselves because more and more people, and now Tesla even, are realizing how much of a scam fiat money is. Mm -hmm. And taking that power back into the hands of the people through cryptocurrencies, I think is going to do good things for the world, to say the least, as well as taking out a lot of the overhead of uh, the, the banking industry. Like people say Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy. Bitcoin mining is proving something, is, uh, is accomplishing something otherwise impossible. Whereas uh, banks use more energy than Bitcoin, just keeping the lights on. Not only, but I'm saying like, that's an aspect of it. And the banking industry as a whole does consume more energy than the Bitcoin mining industry. Wow, that's incredible. And I want to thank you so much for this conversation. This has been one of the most fun conversations and enlightening conversations that I've had so far. You've been I'm glad in, I enjoyed it. Too. Incredible guest. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jacob. Thanks a lot. Yeah, definitely. Till next time. I'll end it here. See ya.